This episode is the second in a two-part series. It discusses themes of mental health, abuse, and childhood trauma. Listener discretion is advised. This is The Fall Line. Last episode, we began the story of Robin Burton. She's an advocate for missing persons cases among unhoused communities across the United States. Robin works online and in person to distribute flyers, share cases, and reconnect families. And she's also focused on the everyday needs of the people that she meets as well. Food, supplies, camping gear, whatever her contacts communicate to her and other volunteers is needed. It's become her second full-time job, something that she fits in around other jobs and moves, her commitments to the daughter that she raised as her own, and now to her granddaughter. And all that time, she's been looking for her own mother, Claudia Leslie Wells, for decades. Listeners may remember that Claudia is called Leslie by her family, and that's how we'll be referring to her throughout these episodes. You also may remember that we began last time by telling you how Robin's involvement in missing persons work began. She realized Leslie had disappeared into an unhoused community. An outreach worker had filed a report. So Robin tracked her, first in one state, and then another. But to get you to how all that happened, you have to understand their story. We began last time with Leslie's childhood and with Robin's. You'll recall that Robin was raised by her grandparents in her early childhood. Leslie came and went from their home base in Illinois, sometimes gone for weeks or months or even years. Then, after Robin's grandfather's death, her and her grandmother's life became more unsettled. Sometimes they lived at home in the house that Robin grew up in. Other times, they stayed with relatives or, even for short periods, with Leslie. Last time, we left off in the mid-1980s. Robin was just entering junior high. They'd been on an ill-fated trip to Las Vegas with Leslie. After several more moves, Robin finally had the chance to move to Kansas to be with Dorothea. Dorothea, the youngest of Leslie's sisters, was raised alongside Robin. Though she was nine years older, she felt the most like a contemporary. So Robin was excited to be in the same state with her. She'd lived in Kansas before, albeit briefly, and she loved it there. When Leslie called her up, like always it was out of the blue, and asked where she wanted to live, Robin told her Kansas. Leslie offered to get them home there just the two of them. Robin's grandmother could stay in Illinois with other relatives for a while. Robin was 18 then. My grandma had sold her house and was over with my aunt and uncle, and I moved in with my cousin. And my mom called me on the phone and told me I could live wherever I wanted to live, that she would pay, because she wanted us to live together because we never lived together before. So I said Kansas, because I really liked Kansas, because my sister Dorothea was down there, because me and Dorothea was the only two that grew up together. My mom's the youngest sister. And so we moved to got a house in Junction City, Kansas. Then one day, she didn't come home, and the rent was due, and I was stuck. <laughs> Robin knows that it's hard for many people to understand. The frightening things. Her mother promised stability and then disappeared. But she wants our listeners to know that there were good things, too. It's important to understand that life with Leslie was complex. She was a highly intelligent woman dealing with trauma. She'd had shock treatments in the 1960s as a young teen. She was living with mental illness. And Robin feels that 
Now, she can understand it all a little more. I know I'm talking about all the bad stuff, but my mom loved me. You know, I have to look back at it now and say she did what she thought was best. I couldn't have, I wouldn't have wanted a life with her. You know, tell where I would have ended up or what would have happened. But when she came home, she was all about me. I, I have natural curly hair and it was long and I, and I didn't like anybody brushing it and it would get big nests in it. And every time she would come home, she would take me to her best friend Gloria's house and they would put a gahan of conditioner on my hair and get everything out. I remember Christmases, I mean, she would get me all kinds of stuff. I remember one year she wasn't home and she had sent a bunch of Christmas presents in the mail to me. And then she popped in like a few weeks later. But every time she'd come home after she was gone, she acted like she never left and everybody else did too. This time though, in Kansas, things were a little different. Robin was on her own. She was only 18 and she could not reach Leslie. Perhaps she could have gone to another relative. She'd been doing that for years. But this time, maybe she was a little tired of all the moving. Either way, Robin decided that was it. Instead of calling someone, Robin moved in with a boyfriend. And within a year, she was married to a man named Jeff. They'd be together for the next decade. He was with her through the most tumultuous period in the mid-90s, when her grandmother passed away and when Leslie finally disappeared for good. During the first few years of Robin's marriage to Jeff, her mother Leslie came to their home a few times. At that point, Robin and Jeff were living in Missouri. One winter, Leslie showed up with a request. Leslie said that she was on the way to Arizona. She had plans to stay with her on-again, off-again boyfriend, Adrian. We told you about him last episode, but she needed Robin's help. By that time, Robin was in her early 20s, and she had her own money and her own place. But she was very much living paycheck to paycheck, and after a lifetime of chaos, it was hard for her to trust her mom, even though she wanted to. She showed up at... My, my husband's house in Cape Girardeau, Missouri. And I wasn't going to let her stay with me. I couldn't trust her. She showed up at the house and she said, well, I want to go to Adrian's, but I don't have enough money for, she said, I have enough money for gas, but I wouldn't have enough money for food. So I took her to the grocery store and loaded her down with food where she'd go to Arizona. Well, she left and about two or three weeks later, maybe a month even, some people came up to the house with my mom's picture, wanting to know if we knew her, that she was miss a missing person. And I was like, what? She had went to a battered women's shelter there in Cape Girardeau, which was probably about eight blocks from where I lived. She told them that she married a sergeant in the army that was really mean to me and that I was that I hated her because of that and wouldn't have anything to do with her because of that. And that the man in the military beat on her and she was getting away from him and I wouldn't let her stay at the house because I was mad because of what he did to me. So anyway, they set her up with housing and she told them, oh, he called, he called, you know, I'm really nervous. And then she just disappeared. So they thought that this man got a hold of her. To Robin's knowledge, this was the first time her mom had gone to a shelter. Of course, the information she'd given the outreach workers was mostly false. But 
it established what would become a pattern, something that Robin would recognize later, when Leslie finally disappeared for good. Robin last saw Leslie in person in December of 1994. A while before the holiday, Robin's grandmother had broken her hip and needed nursing care, so she'd been staying in a nursing center in Illinois. At the time, Robin was still in Missouri, and she couldn't help out. But when Leslie came back to Illinois to visit, she'd offered to take over her mother's care. And Robin says that, for a while, things had gone very well. Leslie got an apartment, and she moved them both in. They didn't have a car, so Leslie walked to run their errands. She got their groceries. She did their laundry. Everything. And Robin's grandmother? She was improving. When Robin came home for Christmas with her husband, she saw it for herself. Things, they seemed settled. But then, after Robin returned to Missouri, she heard from her family in Illinois. Leslie had taken off again. They were used to that, but it was much more shocking because she had been taking care of Robin's grandmother, and the family didn't know that she'd planned to leave. So she left two or three weeks after Christmas and uh, didn't tell anybody, of course. My mom left for the last time in January of 95, and my grandma passed away March of 95. So we've never seen my mom again after that. At this point in Robin's story, the timeline gets a little tricky. There are things she knows now that she didn't know back then, back in the 90s. Her family assumed that Leslie was off, maybe with Adrian, maybe somewhere else. But they expected that she turned back up. One year passed, then two, then three. They had no idea that Leslie had made her way to California. Robin only knows this now because of a missing person report that was filed, one she didn't find out about until the 2010s. We'll have more on how she discovered that info a little later, but we know that in 1998, Leslie was in California and that she signed into a shelter in San Diego. She goes to this homeless shelter and she tells them that she has a heart condition and she's real sick and that she's a veteran and she's going to the VA hospital. Her mom's not a veteran. That they gave her $2 in tokens to get to the VA and back, bus tokens, and she told them she'd be back and she never, she never came back. Using the information that Leslie had given at the shelter, an outreach worker filed a missing persons report with local law enforcement. That created a paper trail that would become important, much later, when Robin began her own search. Robin did not consider Leslie a missing person for a long time. The reason is pretty simple. Her mother had always come and gone, and had sometimes been out of contact for as long as five years, though Robin said she would at least call during those stretches. But the family assumed Leslie was feeling bad about her mother's death. Leslie had always had a way of getting news, somehow, and they figured this time had been no different. But when 10 years had passed, Robin felt that something had to be wrong. No matter how responsible Leslie felt, she didn't think that she'd be gone that long. So, Robin decided to file a missing persons report. But that proved to be more difficult than she first assumed. By that time, it was 2005, and Robin, now divorced, was living in Alabama. She called Illinois, as that was the last place she'd seen her mother, to try and file the report. She tells us it was an ordeal to try and explain to law enforcement why she'd waited so long to report Leslie is missing. It was a difficult situation to explain. But once Robin made the calls, she thought she was done. And for the next several years, 
she began working on her mother's case. She made flyers, and she spoke to anyone that she could. She started a missing persons page for Leslie on Facebook. At that time, she had no idea where in the country Leslie might be. Adrian had died in the 90s, and Robin didn't know of any of her other friends. But with the advent of podcasts, there was a new way to reach a wider audience. When one reached out, Robin took the chance to try and share her mother's story. Somebody wanted me to go on a podcast because now I'm looking for my mom. And the podcast needed my mom's case number. And I called the police station to get my mom's case number. And the dispatcher told me that my mom is not in the system of missing. And I was angry. I was like, are you kidding me? And the detective calls me back and says, Robin, you don't even know your mom's social security number. How can we report her missing? I know a lot more now than I did then. This was in 2011, and Leslie is now listed as a missing person. But during the confusion, Robin's niece was trying to help her do research and gather information. And she made a startling discovery, one that connected Leslie back to San Diego in 1988 to that homeless shelter and the outreach worker who'd reported her missing. During this whole ordeal, my niece called me on the phone, and Aunt Robin, she said, I've looked at this site before, but this is the first time I'm seeing this. She said, it's a site called NamUs, the missing people. She said, there's no picture. She said, I just want you to go look at this. She said, there's a lady on here with no picture named Leslie C. Wells. I went, and the birth date was a little off, but I just knew, I just, this has to be her. And I called San Diego, and I talked to a detective, and I said, I believe that it's my mom. You know, I want to know who report her missing, if they could maybe remember her, if I could get their information. And she said, well, we actually have a picture of her, but we hadn't put it on NamUs yet. And I said, do you have pictures that you could send us of your mom? And I said, well, I have a Facebook page for my mom. And so they got on the Facebook page and started looking. Detective Millett said... We're not sure because in all your pictures, your mom's smiling. We don't know if this is her or not. And they sent us the picture, and sure enough, it was my mom. So I requested the police report. The police report had me listed as next of kin. She has my name down, Robin Burton. Um, but she has me saying that I lived overseas. She also They also had written down all of her medications that she had that she'd brought in, because I guess she checked them in at the shelter. Well, and she, they had the doctor's names and phone numbers. They were doctors from Granite City, which is like five miles from me. So that told me that my mom had come back, because she didn't carry medicine around with her for three years, and that I know. When Robin says that Granite City is five miles away, she means from her family in Illinois. She suspects that Leslie returned to the area after her grandmother's death. Why she didn't make contact, Robin can't be certain, but she says the family suspects that Leslie visited the cemetery to see her father and that she saw her mother had died too. The guilt of knowing she'd left and that her mother had died so soon after, Robin thinks that's why she left again without making contact. And it reinforces Robin's opinion as to why Leslie has not been in touch since.
That proof that Leslie had been alive in 1998 reinvigorated Robin's search, but it was nothing compared to what came next. Robin tells us that she's had the pro bono help of a private investigator for the last 12 years. He'll check activity on Leslie's social security number every so often, and he'll follow up on any leads that Robin tracks down. One night in 2014, Robin was at work back in Illinois. At that time, she was managing and tending bar. By then, she'd been running her mother's missing persons page on Facebook for a few years, but she hadn't started her other advocacy work, not yet. The private investigator called her during her shift to let her know that he'd spotted some activity. I got a phone call from my private investigator and he said, Robin, I don't know how we missed this, but your mom's social security number was used in 2013, in January 2013 in Santa Monica, California. Well, it was at a shelter. Robin was shocked, of course. This was, to her, proof of life 15 years after the San Diego report. Of course, someone can use another person's social security number. But the fact that both pieces of evidence popped up in California, the connection felt like more than a coincidence. There was a customer at the bar that evening, the only customer actually. And when Robin hung up the phone, she told him the whole story. Well, unbeknownst to me, my customer leaves. He goes home and starts searching the web. And he calls me like two days later and he said, Robin, he said, I wouldn't call you for any reason. He said, but there's something that I've been sitting on for the last 48 hours. And he said, I just keep staring at it and staring at it. And he said, and there's something that I need you to look at. He said, I need your email address. And I had no idea what he was talking about. I give him my email address and he sends me this article from the LA Times. And it was an article about our homeless population. It was a February 2014 article. And on the front page of the LA Times was a picture of my mom. And I knew it was her. There wasn't a doubt in my mind. I put her picture up on a flyer immediately. Her sisters got mad because they don't believe that that's her. I had facial recognition done to it. They all believe that it's her. I've had a sketch artist that also believes that it's her. So then I had to get a hold of the LA Times because the picture was taken on Skid Row in Los Angeles, California. That was a February 2014 article. So it had her name listed as Diane Vadago. And I said, I don't care what she says her name is because she never used her real name. Well, come to find out, after talking to the photographer, that picture was actually taken in January 2013. Um during a homeless count in Santa Monica, California, the exact same year and month and city that my mom's social security card was used. Based on the article and what she heard from the photographer, Robin knew a little about the context of the photograph, but she also noticed a few important details. I knew it was my mom and she was waiting on a bus and um, she rode the bus to keep warm in the evening. In the picture, if you notice, the, the coat that she has on and the sunglasses up on top of her head, those are very expensive items that she's wearing. And I don't know if she was out there panhandling, because I think that like when she's down on her luck, she will panhandle and do things, and then she's back on top again. Like My mom could be homeless or she could not be homeless. That's why I say my mom could be living the life of the rich and famous or she could be homeless. 
My mom might not be on the streets. My mom may be living with somebody in a house. It's just so hard to explain. Just because she has been homeless doesn't mean that she is homeless. She could be your neighbor. She could, she could be absolutely anywhere. This discovery of Leslie in the paper and the photographic evidence that lined up with the use of her social security number in Santa Monica changed the direction of Robin's life. She decided that she needed to go to California and look for Leslie. She knew that she might not be in L.A. or Santa Monica, that she might not be living unhoused at all. But Robin had to start somewhere, and suddenly the media began to take notice of her story. Per a KTVI report from 2014, when the public caught wind of Robin's discovery, they wanted to help. The news that she'd found Leslie in the photo, that there was proof that she'd been in California, that was enough to inspire others to contribute. An organization, Media for the Missing, paid for a rental car so Robin could make her way to Los Angeles. Robin still planned to visit L.A., she tells us, even though she knew the photo was taken in Santa Monica, because there had been sightings of Leslie reported in the area around Skid Row. Robin set up a GoFundMe, which local media publicized, to pay for her travel expenses. According to the Pasadena Star News, Robin eventually raised $1,500. Not a lot to sustain her for a 2,000-mile trip, but she made it. And Robin spent a few weeks in L.A., visiting encampments, speaking with locals, and distributing flyers. She visited Los Angeles, Pasadena, and Santa Monica in hopes of a lead. Robin tells us that she also headed to San Diego in hopes of straightening out a few issues with her mother's case file. Robin explained that because of irregularities with how her name was entered, Leslie's missing persons report would not come up if her name was searched. The case number itself would have to be given, and Robin tells us that she still has issues with this today. Of course, Robin did not find Leslie on that trip, but she did learn something else. Her time in California was her first sustained contact speaking with members of unhoused communities. She didn't just meet people or learn about their situations. She heard about missing persons cases in their communities, and she heard about relatives they'd lost touch with. When Robin returned home, she wasn't just reinvigorated in her search for Leslie. She had a new mission. I don't know. It's just, I was very angry at God whenever I went to California. I was like, how can you send me a picture after 20 years? And I come out here and I can't find her. I know everything's for a reason. I don't understand the reason for this. And I think the reason was I was supposed to start missing homeless. And at the time, there was homeless pages. There was missing pages. But nobody ever put the two together. And I'm the... And I started the very first missing homeless page. And whenever I came home, and at first it was crazy. Um, the first week we found three people. It was amazing enough to find one, but we found three. And it's just grown. And there's been so many people that's been found. And now everybody's doing missing homeless pages. And everybody's saying, well, this person's homeless and missing. That was never the case before. And? That's how it began. For nearly nine years, Robin has been at it. She organizes regular, practical, day-to-day -day help with other volunteers and groups. As Robin told the Bellevue News Democrat in 2016, quote, there are people who've lost their jobs. There are people who are mentally ill. There are runaways who were kicked out of the house. Everybody has a story. It's not our place to judge. She told the paper that by then, she traveled to multiple states to look for Leslie. She also followed up on tips, 
They'd come in both to Missing and Homeless and to her personal missing page for Leslie. Sometimes those tips seemed strong. Others were not so much. But there was one situation in particular that had a major impact on how Robin looks for the missing and how she instructs other families to do so as well. Up until then, she hadn't had to worry about her safety. It started with a hang-up phone call. So maybe five or six years ago, um, I get a phone call and they hang up on me. And my mom was really good about that before she came home. She would sit on the phone with you and not say anything. And then she'd hang up and she'd do it again and again. And then finally one day she would she'd call and she'd say, hey, what you doing? So I get this phone call where somebody's on the other end. And they're not answering. And then they hang up the, the call saying California across my phone. So I call the number back and somebody answers the phone and says, I don't know, Claudia, don't call me back again. It hangs up and I went, whoa, nobody ever said anything about Claudia. Now, who is this person? So now I'm calling them back. And they text me more than we talked, but we did talk on the phone a few times, but they said that they were with my, that they were homeless and they were with my mom and that she was, health-wise, that she wasn't doing very good. Robin says that the caller explained that they couldn't send photo proof because their government-provided phone just didn't have that capability. They go to tell me that they're in Oceanside, California, and that every day my mom's at, at the uh, library, and they can arrange that I meet my mom, but they take care of my mom, and they just wanted to make sure that I wouldn't put my mom in any kind of mental institution or anything like that. And I was, I said, no, absolutely not. You know, she survived this many years. I wouldn't do that. And I had a vacation planned in May with my daughter, well, who I claim as my daughter who I raised. We were going to California, and when all this happened, she came to me and she said, Mama, if you want to take our vacation and cash it in and go, I want you to go. Robin still had her reservations, so she decided it was best not to let the mystery caller know that she was on her way. She'd make contact once she actually got to the West Coast. And I flew out to California. I got there, and they didn't know I was coming. And I got there, and I said, where are you guys at? I'm in Oceanside right now. I want to see her. They're like, what? You came here? You know, um, I just told her, and she doesn't want to see you, and blah, blah. So then I got on the Internet, and I'm crying. And I do a video where I'm in California, and my mom doesn't want to see me. My mom's been found, and she doesn't want to see me. Robin's video reached her wide audience across social media. And soon, another advocate one located nearby in California, got in touch. She asked Robin to meet her at a local restaurant. The advocate, she'd seen something like this before, and she had something to show Robin. And she brought her laptop in, and she said, Robin, I want you to log in on to Facebook. She said, and I want you to send these people a message and She said, I don't care what you have to say, but whatever you have to say, you have to make sure that they open this link. So I get on Facebook and I said, I think I just found my mom. Is this her? Is this the lady that's with you? And they opened the link. And as soon as they opened the link, we found out they were in Kansas City. Still to this day, does it make sense? They never asked me for money. They don't know me from Adam. And they played a hoax on me. So now I get sightings and I don't know if it's these people or not because I have found a couple times that it has been these people. Robin is more careful now. She doesn't use any phone numbers, unless they're for law enforcement. 
She teaches families, advocates, and individuals to be careful how they share their own information. But it hasn't made her want to quit. She's changed her tactics some, and her search for Leslie has to be part of the bigger picture. Her work with missing and homeless, her on-the-street practical aid, and her life. It's been a, a journey. And I've been everywhere. I've been, I've been to California looking for her. I've had sightings in Vegas, and I've flown to Vegas. I've went to, went to Texas because we thought she was in Texas one time. I mean, I've been everywhere. I've been to Arkansas, and I've quit going now. Now I'm not going to go unless I'm for sure because it's been very expensive, very expensive mistakes. I wanted to find her and tell her I love her and mean it because she thinks that I hate her. And she thinks that because I really did. And somebody said, your mom knows that you don't hate her. And I said, how could she? Because I really did then. Will I ever know? If she's in a nursing home, you know, I heard that Alzheimer's can run in a family. Well, her oldest sister has it. Does she have it now? Robin is not sure if those answers will come. But in the meantime, she's watched and facilitated them for other people. Robin told us one story of a man who'd been housing insecure for years. He'd spent the last months of his life in a nursing facility. When he died, an employer was concerned that they had no leads on his next of kin. So she'd reached out to Missing and Homeless to help. I get a message from a lady. She worked at this nursing home, and she wanted to find the family because he had just passed away. They couldn't. They didn't look for him whenever he was alive, but but after he died, she went and looked for the family and found the family within just a couple of days. And he was like 30 miles from his sister in the nursing home all these years. It's just one of many stories, and Robin could tell you a dozen more. Sometimes it's overwhelming. And I know that I'm supposed to be doing this. I used to have a whole team and, you know, life just happens. And now it's just me on the page. Um, people don't know it's just me on the page because, you know, if you go to the messages, it still says, you know, missing homeless team, you know, because I don't tell them that I'm the one on the page, but I get overwhelmed and I have to walk away from it and then I'll come back to it. And then I have to walk away from it again. And I'm overwhelmed. You know, I'm, I'm finding everybody but her. It's crazy, right? And uh, I'm happy when people get found. I really am. And I'm happy for families, but I don't understand. I don't understand why I can't find her, you know. I think that's the hardest part in doing all of this. But I am happy for the families, you know, and I cry with the families, you know, and I understand. I get it. Robin found her birth father a few years ago through an ancestry test, and she met that side of her family. She got answers to some questions, but it's been more complicated than she would have liked. Not the simple happy reunion that she might have hoped for. And I can feel sorry for myself, but there's people that have it a lot worse than I do. And, you know, I can be upset that I have a mom and dad both out there and neither one of them want anything to do with me. Um, I don't understand, but then I look at it, well, at least I got to meet him. At least I got to meet him, and, and I'm okay with that. I, mean, I know who he is, but he is a good man. And I'm okay with that. I'm, what I'm not okay with is my mom not knowing how much I love her. I'm not okay with that. But you have a very important message for her. Yes. I love you. That's my message. Thank you. Thank you for always helping when you came home. What Robin can do, she says, is try and get that message out. 
and do what she hopes someone out there is doing for her mother. I do a Claudia's Christmas uh, in downtown, downtown St. Louis. I didn't have it in the last two years because of COVID, but I've done it every year since I found out that my mom was homeless. I take brand new stuff on Christmas morning downtown and I pass it out to the homeless and everything. Everybody deserves something new on Christmas. And on Christmas, I I go down to the homeless community and I pass out new stuff. And this year, and that got overwhelming. <laughs> um, so this year, I'm just going to do stockings with full of candy and stuff because candy is a huge treat in the homeless community because they don't get a lot of sweets. And we call it Claudia's Christmas because Christmas was the last time I seen my mom. If you have any information regarding the location of Claudia Leslie Wells, please reach out to missingandhomeless at gmail.com. Next time on The Fall Line, we begin the second story of our season, one that spans decades and brought together a woman searching for her mother and another trying to identify a decades-old Jane Doe homicide victim. If you know of a case that should be covered on The Fall Line, there's a link to our case submission form in the show notes. We're working on several future seasons, including cases in Mississippi, New Mexico, and MMIP cases. That's missing and murdered indigenous persons across the nation. If you're seeking coverage for a loved one or know of an unidentified person's case that fits those parameters, please reach out. We also want to let listeners know that the niece of Leon Lorellis, whose story we covered here on The Fall Line, has started her own podcast. Arlene's podcast, Box in the Basement, can be found anywhere you listen to podcasts. So be sure to tune in. There's a link in the show notes. Thank you for listening. The Fall Line is an independent podcast, and we appreciate listener support. It allows us to do research, obtain FOIA, and pay our content advisors, and support and donate to the causes we care about. If you try out the products we advertise, please use our sponsor codes. It really helps. And please take a moment to rate and review our show on your podcast app of choice. My book, Lay Them to Rest, which covers years of my life working on a Jane Doe case and the world of forensic scientists who resolve unidentified persons cases, is out everywhere as hardcover, ebook, and audiobook, read by me. You can order it anywhere you get books and through your local library. Find out more in the link in our show notes. If you'd like to support the show and the stories we cover, join us on Patreon or Apple Premium. 100% of our Patreon and Apple Premium earnings are supporting our Family Therapy Fund and actively paying for therapy for families who've appeared on the show. On Patreon, you can get early release, ad-free versions of our regular episodes for $5 a month. If you prefer Apple Premium, you can subscribe there as well. On Patreon, we also post occasional giveaways, updates, and blogs, which all patrons can enjoy, starting at just a dollar. The Fall Line is written, hosted, and researched by Laura Norton, with additional research by Brian Warders. Interviews by Brooke Hargrove, produced, engineered, and scored by Maura Curry. Content advisement by Brandy C. Williams and Vic Kennedy. And, as always, our most special thanks to Liz Lipka.